everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety treatment, and getting your life back. My name is Kevin Foss, and I am a licensed clinician and OCD specialist. And uh, thank you all for joining me uh, for this episode. Um, if you would like to know more about uh, the FearCast, if you're new to uh, to listening to it, um, feel free to go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Uh, this is a this is a uh, question and answer based podcast. So if you have questions about OCD, anxiety, phobias, uh, uh, social anxiety, that sort of stuff, uh, email me, message me, and uh, I will read them, consider the questions, and I will likely put it up on an episode. So thank you all for joining me for this. Today, I'm going to be answering two, count them, two questions from listeners. And um, also, uh, uh, before I get into that, um, if you like the show, Feel free to go over to Instagram and uh, follow me there. I'm Fearcast Podcast over there. Um, but also, if you like the episode, give me a review. Um, give a like, give a thumbs up, give a star, give whatever it is on whatever format you're listening to it. It helps the podcast, it helps other people find it, and uh, it helps to expand the show. So, uh, first, I hope everybody out there is doing well. Hope everybody out there is dealing with the pandemic. Um, I have been calling it the plague. Uh, for uh, over the Easter slash Passover time. I feel like that was the appropriate name for it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the theme of the week, it seemed, for my clients this past week um, was cabin fever and going stir-crazy. Um, it was it was remarkable. I, uh, I during sessions, I you know on sessions on on Wednesday, you know I had six six clients or so, and at, at, you know after session like four the fifth one, I just went. I've had the same conversation four four times now, meaning that the the, the almost every conversation that I had this past week was about struggle dealing with being inside and not going anywhere. And it almost just seemed like the pressures of not going anywhere and the pressures of what the pandemic means um, just just kind of hit everybody all at once. Um, it, it, it was it was interesting, to say the least. Um, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I noticed it myself. Um, I uh, if, if you are all listeners and you do listen to the show on a regular basis, I try to put the show out every other week. But um, I took a week off because I was feeling it myself. I went through a, a real a real weird downtime where I just had no real interest in doing anything. Um, and um, I let a week pass. I let a week pass. Um, you know, I could also make the excuse that over the weekend, you know, I was dealing with, um, you know, doing Easter stuff and uh, prepping the house for it. And, you know, we had uh, my in-laws over for it. Uh, you know, I could I could talk about that. Um, but there was just, it was also just not a whole lot of drive. And I was just kind of keeping my head above water and just kind of plugging forward as, as I try to do. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people have been feeling. I think even more than that, I think people are also discovering the importance of space and time. Meaning, if you are quarantining with somebody, you're realizing that they're there all the time. They're there. And they're not going anywhere. They're not going to work. They're not going to get like a break. Or you're not going to get a break. And they're not going to get a break from you. But it's that thing where 
we're, I think we're starting to discover how valuable and our commute is. While we used to complain about our 20, 30, 40 minute commute back and forth and taking the subway or taking the freeway or taking the bus or however we got back and forth, we're going, man, I used to use that time to listen to podcasts or read or kind of listen to music or for some to pray. And it was a, a moment, it was, a, it was downtime. It was time to focus, and we're not having that anymore. And then we're not having any quiet time because then we have people. We have our husband, our wife. We have our our kids. We have our in-laws. We have our roommates. We have people all over, and we don't have that break. And it's been really hard. And I think for a lot of the clients that I've been dealing with, they, there's been this. There's been a couple of things that I've been finding. And if you are one of these people, I hope that we can find a, we, you, me, in our own individual lives, find a ways that we can make this work. This section of the podcast is not that thought out. That that is for later on. But just a couple of the things that I had had considered is number one with the the people that are in our lives, um, who who we you know it may be your 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 boyfriend girlfriend husband wife whoever it may be. Um, if you are quarantining with somebody. Um, Remember that nobody really asked for the quarantine. It's not like we all said, you know, it'd be a really, really great idea to be extremely stressed out and then never have downtime. How much fun is that going to be? So we can remember that if we're starting to feel prickly and spiky towards our partner or towards our quarantine partners in this, remember that they're in it with us too. They don't like it either. But you can remember that, that that our dynamic isn't us fighting against our partners so that we can have the best quarantine we can, or us fighting against the person that we're with so that we can get our own needs met. But to remember that you and your partner, you and the person that you're with, are working on this together. You are the teammates on this, and your adversary is quarantine. This existential idea of quarantine, or of COVID, or name it whatever you want. But shifting the attention to how are we going to make this happen? And remember, because nobody asked for this, we need to remember that that we need some grace, they need some grace and patience, and, and there are going to be some concessions that need to be made on both sides of this in order for us to come together against our adversary, quarantine. Now, to that point... One of the best, most important things that you can do is to communicate with your partner or communicate to the person that you're with about what needs you need met. How can you, what are the things that you need in this? Do you need time? Do you need space? Do you need 10 minutes to walk around the block? Do you need, um, do you need a little bit of encouragement? Do you need them to say X? Do you need them to not say Y? And for you also to listen to your partner and to find out what they are needing, and then to talk back and forth about what you can do. And it may be that, you know, it feels like because maybe your one partner is spending a lot of time homeschooling the kids, so, you know, they're not doing the dishes or they're not vacuuming. Well, if it feels like then you are picking up all the slack, maybe there needs to be a communication process about, um, First, letting the person know how you're feeling. Using those I statements, I'm feeling like I'm taking on a lot of pressure. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling um, left out. I'm feeling ignored. Let, let them know. And also then, 
and I'll say this, to, also to not to avoid saying you statements. You are doing this. You are not doing that. It puts someone on edge. Anyways, and again, for us to listen to our partner to find out what it is that they are needing. Maybe they need us to take a small break from work that we're doing from home and to you know, maybe take one less Zoom meeting and to maybe spend a little bit of time with the kids to homeschool them or to help vacuum or to help pick up the slack for them. Now, in the, in the sake of patience, we can also remember we may not get what we want, and that's okay. We may not get everything that we want and everything that we need. But we're going to try to get the best that we can. Because if we're going to settle for an all or nothing, then you're probably going to get nothing. My very last point in this is that we can all learn to be flexible in this. Since not everything is working out the way that we want it to, we can do our best to work together to figure out what we're going to do to make it work for us. So if typically on Fridays you would have gone to a movie, well, that you're not doing that anymore, right? So what is going to be the next best? What is going to be the world's okayest date night? What is going to be the silver medal? Because right now in life, everybody, we're kind of settling for a silver medal. We don't need to then say, screw it, I'm out, and, and just say life is worth not worth living, right? But we can say, what is the best that I can get? It's not gold standard right now, and that's all right. But how can I make this the best that I can? And to view that silver lining see it as this silver medal. It's not what I exactly had wished for, but I'm going to work and we are going to work together to make this the best. So if you and your partner or you and your friends or you and your uh, um, quarantine mates are, are having a, a trouble with this, um, message me. Think, message me both with what the struggles are and message me with what you guys are doing to work it out. I think so much of this is going to be our group and collaborative effort to get through it together. So if you have some of these ideas, message me. If, uh, if I get enough of them, uh, I'll share them. I'll make a whole section just about what other people are doing. And honestly, I as a person am just kind of interested in what y'all are doing. Um, I'm not the most creative man alive. And, uh, and sometimes I like to ask the hive mind, which is all of you, my listeners. So if you're doing something that's working, if you're having stuff that's not working, let me know. Perhaps we'll do a whole episode on this. But So those are my brief sort of thoughts on how we're all dealing with the pandemic. So let's get into those questions. Actually, before we get into the questions, I want to mention this first question does include some adult content. So we're going to be talking about HOCD and we're going to be talking about sex. So if you have little listeners and little ears that you don't want to uh, listen to this type of stuff, that's totally fine. And now would be a good time to um, turn off the episode and perhaps meet me on a future episode. So, again, off to the question. All right, so our first question comes from Matt. Matt asks, Hey, Kevin, thank you so much for your podcast. It helped me a lot to understand OCD, and I almost have listened to every episode. I know that HSCD was a topic in two episodes already, but this question might be for some other subtypes of OCD. Since my HSCD got really bad and every day is a struggle for me, I lost my libido completely. It came back sometimes, but for most of the time, it's absolutely gone, which then seems to be proof of my homosexuality and makes it even worse. Every woman I found attractive before HSCD hit me so bad, but I'm feeling absolutely nothing right now. 
I don't even want to meet new girls anymore because I know I'm not even able to have sexual contact with them, as this will also prove that I was in denial. It also happened that I wasn't able to get an erection the last time I was in bed with a girl. I also broke up, not due to HSCD, with my girlfriend a year ago. We were a couple for almost six years. Could it be that my attraction to other girls during their relationship was only there because it was, quote, forbidden to think about it? I know this has gotten very HSD specific at the end, but would you mind talking about libido or loss of libido in one of your episodes? Thanks so much in advance. He also says at the end, I also want to mention that your podcast has helped me to finally get in contact with a therapist who I'm going to meet next week. Then adds, English is my second language, so I'm sorry for some grammar mistakes here and there. So first off, Matt, thank you all so much for the question. Uh, your English really was not that bad, to be honest. I've, I, I've, I've, read, I, I've, I've read worse. This sounds great. So um, also, I'm so happy that this podcast has encouraged you to find a therapist. This is great. This is exactly one of this is one of the goals that I'd set out for this podcast is to hopefully have enough information out there, dispel some rumors, dispel some kind of fears that people have about therapy, encourage folks to go get on their recovery because you can. All right, so Matt, losing one's sex drive when experiencing OCD symptoms is something that happens to a lot of people for reasons I'll just discuss in a moment. Unfortunately, there are a few subtypes in which the loss or the drop in libido starts this kind of negative feedback loop. HOCD is one of them. All right, so why the loss in libido with an increase in anxiety? Well, increased anxiety and panic impacts the production of hormones in your body, so specifically adrenaline. So if your body is having trouble relaxing as part of the increased adrenaline, it's going to have a difficult time trying to get you know in the mood um, and to experience pleasurable feelings. Adrenaline is going to be one of those hormones that our body releases as part of the fight or flight system to help us to escape or to fight a potential danger. Now, when we are spiked with our anxiety or our, our obsession, we get that fight or flight feeling, right? It's kind of that antsy feeling, and it's that terrible feeling that usually causes us to do compulsions or compulsive behaviors. Adrenaline is sometimes that feeling that we get, um, or is the hormone that makes us feel kind of that antsy, jittery, like I have to move and kind of bounce my legs up and down, or I feel like I have to run. Uh, it, it, it's that feeling, yeah, probably speaking, it's it's that that makes me talk so stinking fast, especially during my first bunch of episodes because I was nervous. Um, and when I'm doing public speaking, I kind of talk fast. I also talk fast. Anyways, um, anyways, back to this. Being physically tense can also make it difficult to reach an orgasm. This can this raises what's called your orgasmic threshold, meaning it's going to take longer and or require more stimulation to achieve orgasm. Additionally, if you're taking psychiatric medications to manage your anxiety, you may also experience reduced libido. It's a really common side effect of psychiatric medication, which also then uh, leads a lot of people to stop taking medication uh, or to not consider taking medication uh, for fear of a drop or an elimination of their sex drive. So, of course, while, you know, the impact on sex drive can be or, or is a consideration for a lot of people when thinking about taking medication, you should also consider the main effects of medication, such as reduced stress, a greater ability to, to handle and manage anxiety. So, some of those things, it's all, it, it, it's all part of the consideration process. 
Now, back to the idea of libido. Distraction is going to play a huge role here. So if and when you're overly involved with your feared thoughts and questioning your sexuality and kind of going through those, those loops, you're going to have a difficult time being present with your partner enough to become aroused. Furthermore, that, that guilt feeling that you're experiencing or that you've noticed uh, about noticing the attraction to other women, women may also be playing a role here. One thing you said was, I, I don't even want to meet new girls anymore because I know I'm not even able to have sexual contact with them, and this will also prove I was in denial. So I'm assuming what this means is, um, well, I, I can't go out and meet women because I, you know, I, I'm not going to have libido, I'm not going to be able to get an erection, we're not going to be able to have sex, um, and because of all of that, it's going to prove that I was actually in denial about my true sexuality. I'm not attracted to women, instead, I'm attracted to men. Now, in terms of treatment, and I'm kind of jumping the gun on this one, it's going to be important to overcome this concern and to go out and talk to women again. Now, this is definitely going to be difficult at first, but over time and with persistence, you're going to be able to meet new women. Now, of course, when you start to meet new women, you're going to have to prepare yourself. You're going to have to psych yourself out for it. And you're going to have to expect it. You're going to get some rejection in this. Rejection does not necessarily conf it necessarily it doesn't confirm your fears. We get rejection. It's going to happen. It's part of the expectation of dating and approaching people. Um, I don't think there's any person out there who gets a date or goes out with or has sex with every single person that they approach. It's just not in the cards. It's just statistically impossible. Um, if you're one of those people, by the way, who has uh, met, per gone out on a date with every single person you've asked, message me. We need to talk. This is going to be a very interesting future podcast for you and me, but no one's going to message me about that anyways. When you meet new women, you're going to have to prepare yourself, and you're going to know that you're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel uncomfortable, and you're not going to be the, the guy, quote, the guy that you were before all this, and that's okay. You're rebuilding this muscle after an injury, and you have to exercise to get stronger. Also, how do you know that you're not going to be able to have sexual contact with them? Unfortunately, that line of thinking only verifies the fear and only validates it. And it also sets you up for failure. Instead, I'd encourage you to acknowledge that it may be difficult, but not impossible. Because you and I can overcome difficult. We can try difficult. You and I can't do impossible. Furthermore, not getting aroused in bed can mean a ton of things. Not just that you're in denial. I mean, it could be that you're incredibly anxious. Could that be it? It could be that you're not being present. You're, you're not present with this person that you're with. You're, you're over here in left field fighting with the memory that you had and that experience and the memory of that guy and the worry about the future. And 20 years from now, you're not right, you're not right here experiencing what you're experiencing. So it could be that. As somewhat of a side note, I also want to add that the, the attraction to other girls during your previous six-year relationships and, and whether or not you had attraction because it was forbidden, I mean... Maybe that was part of it, could be part of it. I mean, we, we often have that quote, you know, we, we want what we can't have sort of mindset. Um, and if you're presumably in, in monogamous relationships at the time, um, you know, you happen to see other people who aren't the person that you're with, you may go, oh my gosh, I can't have them. Oh, that makes it more exciting and titillating and whatever. Um, I mean, it's somewhat taboo. It's a taboo uh, attraction and it's, a, it's where taboo interests come from. But um, it's also something that's just 
going to happen. You're going to notice other people who are attractive, and it may not be the person that you're with. Uh, this is a conversation I have a lot, a lot. It's that just because you are with someone and you've committed to this person, whether or not it's in a monogamous dating relationship or a monogamous marriage, you're going to notice people who are not your significant other, your spouse, whoever, whatever you call them. Those people are attractive. And there is always going to be someone who's more attractive, more charismatic, um, funny, or whatever than the person that you're with. Um, and that's okay. I mean, my wife points out all the people who are more attractive and charismatic and funnier than me all the time. All right, she doesn't say that, but it's a separate thing. All right, so Matt, what can you do about all this? Well, Matt, number one is to get a handle on your OCD. So I want you to work to get as comfortable with HOCD thoughts as you possibly can. So this is going to involve doing written exposures. It's going to involve looking at men. It's going to involve resisting avoidances. It's going to involve watching, quote, gay movies and TV shows, and otherwise welcoming in any gay thought, I mean, along with any other thought, that your anxious brain wants to be there. Second, when you're ready to begin approaching women and beginning romantic relationships, try, for a period of time, taking the idea of sex off the table. You're probably putting too much pressure on yourself to get an adequate erection, any erection at all, to be sexually aroused, or even attempting sexual interaction without HOCD thoughts. Just like my previous point, you're also going to have to accept that HOCD thoughts will be there during sex, and that's okay. But when attempting to start romantic relationships with women, take a break on the actual gold standard of sex. Take, take that off the table, whatever that might be for you. Typically, I would say it's think about it as penetrative sex or think about it as, you know, running the bases or whatever it is. Take that off the table for a period of time. Take it slow and steady. Practice being present on a date while HOCD thoughts float in and out of your brain. Hold hands while your brain thinks about nude dudes. Roll around and, and, and let things get hot and heavy while you hear the phrase, come on, you know you're really gay, Matt. Come on. Let those thoughts bounce between your ears. Don't just jump on the assumption that you can all of a sudden, you know, jump back in bed and have unencumbered sex and unencumbered thought life. Remember, you broke your arm, in a sense. You can't expect to have the same pre-broken arm strength the moment you get your cast off. You're going to have to work at it. And that's okay. That's where doing exposures and getting used to the idea that you're going to have these thoughts. So, not only both the combination of the thoughts, being present with them, just I mean, again, the presence of the thoughts, the quality of the thoughts, your willingness to embrace them, but also recognizing and accepting that there is that biological component of it. Your body's freaking out. I used to say, and this is the crass way to say it, anxiety is a real boner killer. Now, that's male-centric, of course, but anxiety is a libido killer. So for women as well, I've, I've worked with a number of women who have talked about just when they get their HSCD thoughts, it's hard for them to get in the mood. It's hard for them to feel attracted to somebody else or to feel attractive themselves and to be present with their partner and to get to, you know, get in the mood. It's hard. So taking some of that off the table and doing a combination of practicing being present and, and making space 
in the bedroom. Space in your brain for those thoughts too. The second we try to like shove those thoughts out of the bedroom, they come they come in through the window, right? So, any thoughts that it, your brain could come up with are going to be okay. We're going to let them come in and out, and that's going to be all right. Now, as I mentioned just at the at the top end of this question, is that this there is this uh, kind of negative feedback loop. It's that HOCD is certainly one of these ones that has this feedback loop where um, you have the HOCD thoughts. It impacts one's libido. You can't adequately or or traditionally or whatever have sex to the degree that you would want to and then it feels like it then confirms your hocd and then it just goes back to further killing your libido so i've also noticed this with with rocd so not having libido because of your rocd thoughts re-triggers that thought that you're not attracted to your partner therefore you should leave them it also happens with pocd pedophile ocd it also happens with harm OCD. So you can have you know harmful thoughts, and then you're having trouble uh, uh, harnessing your libido or dropping libido or whatever you want to call it, um, and it feels like you're this you know empty, emotionless, dead person. You don't have the passion that you used to, and serial killers are cold, passionless people. It it has this negative feedback loop, but when we catch ourselves in that loop, it can be really helpful as this motivator to say, I need to get a handle on these thoughts. And furthermore, having an impact on your libido doesn't confirm almost anything. It, it, what it often confirms is you're anxious. That's it. And by the way, anxiety can go the other direction with libido. For some folks, and this isn't you, it sounds like, um, when you have anxiety, it can, it can zip your, your libido way up. And for some, that can be great. For some, that can be also equally exhausting because now they're anxious and worried, but now all they're thinking about is sex. All they're thinking about is sex. So... Um, no one's happy is what I'm trying to tell you. So dropping libido, increasing libido, we're all bummed out. Back to the top of the show about being bummed out about the pandemic. No one's happy. All right. So this question took a weird turn at the very end. But um, but Matt, I hope this helped you. I hope this um, kind of gave you some clear ideas about what you can try, some considerations, some validation. Um, if you have any follow-up or questions about this, if you try some of this stuff and it worked, great. Talk to your therapist as well. I'm sure you are by now, but uh, chat with them about it and um, let me know in the future. So thanks so much. And um, I hope this helped. So this next question comes from Loud Thinker is their name, Loud Thinker. So their question is this, I have hyper-awareness OCD. I'm hyper-aware of my thinking, precisely the decision-making part. Whenever I face a situation that involves making a decision, I get stuck not being able to gather the feelings or the proper thinking way to make my choice. For example, in a shop, I won't know if I want this or that, not knowing which thing is better, and I really end up without a choice. Or, if a friend wants to hang out, I don't know if I want to go or not. I get aware of the feelings needed for making the decision, then I can't get them back to decide. All right, loud thinker, thank you for this question. Um, this is a really good one, and I, I, I get this a lot. I, and I say, I, sorry, I, I, I'll say this way. I get this a lot 
for me, it's, it's perfectionism. For me, it's, uh, I hate doing things twice. I hate buying things twice. I hate making a choice that won't make me supremely happy or satisfied. I remember before I, I had oral surgery a couple of years ago, um, and um, you know they say you know after you have oral surgery you're going to have you know you're going to eat like Jello and pudding and you know soft things for like three weeks right, so I'm going all right. What do I want as my quote my last meal right? Do I so I went through like what are all the foods I'm not going to be able to eat? Well, I'm not going to be able to eat like. Chinese food, which I love. I'm not going to be able to eat tacos. I'm not going to be able to eat pizza. And I kind of, I went through like a burger. I went through all of the things. And an hour later, I'm still going, I don't know what I want. This is ridiculous because I know the, I know what I'm doing. My dumb brain is saying, you need to figure out the right thing. You need to, this needs to be perfect because this needs to be the one meal that carries you through. It's got to be so stinking good that whenever you're eating jello and soft things and sadness for the next couple of weeks, you're going to reflect back on this meal and go, but that was worth it. It was so good. And the pressure on myself to make that one so good caused me to have difficulty making decisions. Um, And it was ridiculous. So I hear you. I feel your pain, loud thinker. Uh, And I've worked with a number of other clients who have also had this, um, have had trouble making this decision. So while mine is perfectionism, you also said that you need to gather the feelings to make the presumably right choice. In other words, it sounds like you want the emotional confirmation that you're making the right choice as if there was a right choice. Feelings can't do this. Decisions are a combination of thoughts, feelings, and to a certain degree, impulsivity. We weigh the options, the pros and cons. Typically, we weigh the options, we weigh the pros and cons. And consider which seems to make the most logical sense for us, in our situation, for our needs. Part of this is to see if there's an obvious choice, which usually there isn't. If there was the obvious choice, you would have made it and you wouldn't be thinking about it. Then we check with our feelings to see if we have any emotions tied to our decision. It might be nostalgia. It might be fear. It might be affection. It might be disgust. It can be any of these things. It can be more of those things, obviously. Um, But these feelings play a role in our choices, but they aren't perfect or complete. Remember, feelings aren't facts, and our thoughts are are data, not direction. Our feelings are data, not direction, right? For example, in my decision to go to work, sometimes I emotionally don't want to go because I'm tired, as I mentioned at the top of the show, burned out. Sometimes I get burned out because I'm human like everybody else. Or I feel a pull towards something, some other more pleasurable activity. For me, it could be playing bass or hiking or Netflix. Um, for the quarantine, uh, I bought myself a guitar. So I'm learning how to play guitar, like a six-string guitar, like a regular person's guitar. It's weird. It's weird. I'm not good at it. Definitely not good at it. But, you know, practice makes better, right? Um, but again, back to the decision to go to work. So if, I, if it were up to my feelings only... I mean, on those days that I had that feeling, I wouldn't go, right? But my head jumps in, as it should. My rational brain jumps in and says, hey, man, remember your commitment to meeting with your clients at your mutually agreed upon time. That's important to you. Also, remember your student loans? They're not going to pay themselves. And not going to work isn't going to help with this. 
so I, I take my thoughts, I take my feelings into account. And for me, I go, I go to work. But again, that takes my thoughts and my feelings into account, and I briefly wrestle with those things, and then I make this decision. Now, that's going to be the case for all decisions in our life. For bigger decisions, we are going to think more. For smaller decisions, we do not need to think the same amount. And furthermore, we do not need to have our feelings be the supreme decider. So, loud thinker, for most decisions, I'd encourage you to start by giving yourself 30 seconds. Now, this is a generous 30 seconds, by the way, but I want you to practice making your decisions in 30 seconds and then sticking with your choice. If 30 is easy, go 20. If 20 is easy, go 15. Ultimately, practicing making decisions without needing to, quote, feel right, feeling complete, feeling like you're making the ultimate right choice. Over time, you'll learn that you can make choices without feeling right, and these choices will overall turn out just fine. It takes time and it takes facing the perceived risk that maybe you're going to make the wrong choice, which guess what? Sometimes you're going to make the wrong choice because we all make the wrong choice from time to time. But it means you'll be making decisions like most of us, mostly good choices, sometimes bad choices, but you'll be making choices and you'll be making them in a more timely manner. But it involves taking that risk. The examples that you mentioned, you don't know if you want this or that. If there isn't an obvious choice, pick one. Make it arbitrary if you want to. Now, don't flip a coin, because that's deferring the responsibility. Um, don't ask a friend. That's deferring responsibility, because then you can blame it on them. Instead, you make the choice. Give yourself 30 seconds. Make the choice. And then maybe if you've made the wrong choice, you have no one to blame but yourself, right? Right. But you also own the success of it, too. But success or failure aside, it's making the choice and going with it, and you're soon going to decide that overall things work out. If it was the difference between a burger and pizza, pick one. Because here's the best part. You're going to be able to make that decision again at some point. This is the best part about decisions. Even if we choose the wrong one, we're going to have another opportunity to make a choice soon. So make the choice, move on, see if it works, see if it doesn't work, and then see if there's another choice in the future. There will be. There will be. But for you, ignoring that thought that you need to make the right choice, if it's between going to, going to hang out with friends or not, I mean, sometimes hanging out with friends is a mixed bag, right? Sometimes we want to hang out with friends, but we don't want to make the drive. Sometimes we want to hang out with friends, except for that one person that we know that's going to be at the party and that's going to kind of sully the experience. Or if we're not feeling totally social that night, you know that feeling where you're like, I kind of want to see people, I don't really want to see people, or you just go, I don't want to see people. But you also know that rationally, seeing people, maintaining friendships is going to be important to you, then go and take the risk or decide to not go, but make the choice and stick with it. Avoid this flip-flop and back and forth nonsense because you're only going to force yourself to be more frustrated, more tired, more annoyed, and you likely will be, and you likely will ultimately not make a choice or the choice will be made for you. But that's not what we want life to do for us. You get to make the choices. So, loud listener, I hope this helps. For anybody out there having trouble making decisions, I hope that helps too. So, thank you so much. 
All right, everybody, thank you so much for making it through this episode. Um, this was kind of a fun one. Um, I haven't, well, I haven't done one, one in a while, and um, sometimes I forget that I like doing this. That's why I keep doing it. So thank you all for sending in questions, everybody, for the listeners who sent in these questions. If you have a question for a future episode or would like to add something to this episode, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and go to the Submit a Question link, and you can message me there. I will read it. I will see it. I will think about it. I will consider it, and then I will likely put it up on a future episode. So please remember, everybody, that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you're having trouble or would like to get started with your own treatment, um, go over to FearCast Podcast. There's going to be some links up there that might point you in the right direction. You can also message me, and I can try to point you in the right direction. Um, but until then, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.